One of the more intriguing verses and sections in the Book of Mormon has got to be uh, Mosiah 26, where it talks about the fact that there were many in the, quote, rising generation that hadn't heard King Benjamin and they didn't want to join because they didn't believe in the traditions of their fathers, that somehow the traditions of the fathers would have kept them close or not believing it meant that they believed an alternative set of uh, beliefs or traditions. And so we get this, this uh, struggle, I think, in the church about what do we do with traditions and how important are our church traditions versus the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is focused on him, as opposed to our traditions, which often involve the history of the church with all of its uh, high points and sacrificing amazing people and flaws and oopsies. Uh, so we're, today we're going to kind of look at the role that tradition plays in our faith uh, and what impact it might have had to that rising generation that included Alma the Younger and the sons of Mosiah. So join us today for a fun discussion, I think, on traditions. And welcome to another Monday morning Book of Mormon class with Kevin Hinckley. Recorded live, we dive deeply and deliberately into this inspired scripture. How far we get in one class depends a lot on the material and the doctrines left for us by ancient prophets. A single chapter may occupy one class or many. Of course, opinions expressed by the teacher or the class members do not constitute official church doctrines. Join us in this adventure and discover the hidden treasures found within his pages. And now, on to the class. Okay, let's begin with uh, today's class. Um, oh, I, I like this one. I thought this was good. How do you manage uh, to always be so nice to each other, pig? It's because I want to go to heaven when I die. And what do you think heaven is? Well, heaven is one big pantry filled with chocolate and cheese where you can eat as much as you want because you can't die twice. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> so Rat's going to say, I may start being good. <laughs> there's, a, there's a reason for that. I, I like that idea. Uh, okay. So, that said, um, I wanted to uh, share a, a little experience that we had with a group once when we were... Uh, we were in Santorini, and, and by the way, if you've never been to Santorini, you really need to figure out a way to get to Santorini. It's pretty cool. Anyway, uh, we had a, uh, the, our guide was, had converted to Orthodox, uh, she was an Orthodox Greek. Um, and she had, and uh, so she was telling us about uh, uh, Orthodox uh, Greek 
religion and, and, and history. She's quite a historian. And it's funny, she said that one of the things that you need to keep in mind, and it's certainly something that I've, I've experienced, is that in all, of the, in all of the ancient world, there was always this veneration of women deity. So if you go to, uh, if you go to Ephesus, for instance, you run into uh, Artemis. That's Artemis. And she was the god of uh, fertility, and she could also be the god of war to protect those. Okay. And if you go to Athens, then you, you get uh, Athena, uh, and it just doesn't matter where you go. And then even in, in uh, Israel, uh, they, were, um, they were also worshiping uh, female deities. There's just this strong pull towards that everywhere in the ancient world. Uh, and she said that, so when, what happened then for the ancient Greeks when Christianity came in, they still had their tradition of, of venerating female deities. But here comes Christianity, and it's about Christ. And so the, what, what the Greek world tried to do was figure out, how do we assimilate what we used to believe with this new religion coming in? Okay? Well, how did they do that? If you can't have, if you can't have Artemis... And you can't have Athena. Who can you have? Yes. So it's not an accident then that sometimes the pictures of the Madonna uh, look very, very similar to when you go around and look at, at Artemis in the ancient world. They look the same. Because all they did was take new information and assimilate it, but hold, try and hold on to as much of their tradition as they can. We'll just tweak some things and then we'll slide it in. Okay? And, and if you think about it, that's kind of how we learn. We learn by taking new, any new information and we plug it into what we already know. And that's how we're going to try and understand our world. Okay? So, th think about if we go back to uh, 1832... Uh, if you're reading the Book of Mormon, uh, or you are, you are um, doesn't matter whether you're Methodist or Baptist or whatever, in 1828, 1829, 1830, and we talk about going to heaven, the goal is to get to heaven. Okay? Now, what are the possibilities in getting to heaven? You gotta, there's going to be a judgment day, right? And then after, what happens after judgment day? Where do you go? You go to your reward if you were good, and if you're bad, you don't get a reward. So now it's all going to be heaven and hell, and that was that was the world. And it, and for a number of the Book of Mormon prophets early in their history, uh, they plugged right into that heaven and hell thing. That was that was how they understood the afterlife because no additional information had been received as of yet. Okay, so. So, what, so here we get section 76. This is the uh, revelation room in the John Johnson home. So this is received in 1832, and it comes because uh, Joseph and Sidney are, are going, God, there's got to be more than heaven and hell. That just doesn't make any sense. That There's so many different gradations of people on the earth. There's got to be more than that. 
So, so we know that in 1832 we received section 76, and now, now we see that there's a lot more out there. Um, and whether you can get out there and then progress through the kingdom, that's one of those areas of debate, obviously. But still, there was more than a heaven and hell. Okay, now, how was that received? For a, for a traditional people that were raised on, believed, you got to be saved, you got to be good, then there's a judgment day, then the good are going to go to heaven and the bad go to hell. How do you think section 76 was received? Maybe. I mean, that's a big jump. I know that I received it well. You, it, sound, it made sense to you. Okay, so for some people, I think they celebrate it and just like, this is the greatest thing ever. They're all at once, there's all kinds of possibilities, right? If you like equity, yeah, that would make sense. But if you're, if you're like, yeah, go ahead. The idea of um, not having purgatory is pretty much exclusively a, a LDS. I mean, at least, at least back in... Oh, oh there's, there, there's no question. Because, because purgatory was going to be, okay, we'll grant you that you may not spend forever in hell, but purgatory, as, as the popes looked at it and Augustine looked at it, said, but there's going to be a place where you, we don't know when you're ready to get out of... In fact, even if you've been pretty good, we don't know if you're really ready to go on to heaven yet. So you're going to go in this place, you just kind of hang out uh, until you're ready to go. But the cool thing for the Catholics were that are there things that, we could, that the living could do in this life to get them through purgatory a little faster? Sure. Light a lot of candles, yeah. A lot of indulgences. And, and you could, if you're doing good things in this life, it has an effect on helping your dead ancestors in purgatory move through the process a little bit faster. Okay? Uh, donate lots of money to the local church. That Sometimes that helps too. Yeah? So, isn't that simply a misguided incomplete about spirit prison and no. yes. Absolutely. The, the concept is real. It is real. Yeah, that's right. And th that was one of the sad things actually about the reformers when we get to Luther and Calvin and stuff. They abandoned all of that completely. There's nothing you can do on this earth to help your ancestors. That was one of those things that got left behind in the Reformation. Okay? That's why in some ways the Reformation was a step back from, from the Restoration, not a step forward. Okay? So anyway, do I go down that road? Anyway, so there was a tradition. However, um, it was received as a mix because people were trying to incorporate this idea of the glories uh, and, and how does that fit with what I've always been taught and believed about being saved. So it took Brigham Young 18 months to accept it. The, the vision was actually the biggest stumbling block for Brigham Young to join the church because he would just... No, it's got to be heaven. The good people that tried hard should go to heaven, and bad people shouldn't get what I get. <laughs> you know, I, dang it, I worked dang hard. And I should be able to get in. And they shouldn't be able to get in. It was Augustine's, 
you know, that I've quoted before where Augustine, St. Augustine is saying the glory, the wonder of being in heaven is being able to watch people suffer in hell. <laughs> so the, the, the wonder of being in first class is knowing that the poor schmucks in coach uh, aren't, aren't where I am. <laughs> you know, I worked hard to get my first class ticket. <laughs> Let them swelter. And then put, quick, pull the curtains so we don't have to look at this, <laughs> the people in the other place. <laughs> okay, so in England, um, Joseph was trying to tell the missionaries, don't preach the vision when you get to England, because it's going to freak them out. Their traditions aren't ready yet to have this flow of new information in here. And one, one anxious, zealous elder walked wanders into Preston, England, and he's this is what he's preaching in church. Let me tell you what Joseph Smith received. Here's the vision. And they got kicked out of Preston too sweet. It was just they weren't ready yet because it was so different from the concepts and the traditions and things that they'd grown up with. Yeah. I think there's also a concept and I think it's in the church some too, people, um, that they uh, don't think it's fair that if they did all the right things, that somebody else should, should still get blessings too. Yes. And uh, I heard a story of, I know a sister, uh, she and her husband went to the temple to be sealed, and they both, they, they had stories. And one of her aunts came up to her afterwards and says, you know, it really isn't fair. It's, it's not fair that... that... You get to do this, and I've always done everything right. And I think it, it's a real challenge for Christians that we say we are, to not to want to love others, and, and then we need to re-examine why did we do what we did. Oh, yeah. Why are we living this gospel in the first place? Well, <laughs> if, if, if we, sometimes we go to church and it's like, okay, let's, let's assume sometimes our sacrament meetings are less than stintillating. <laughs> And it's a nice day and you'd rather stay home, but you're going to go and listen to the high council speaker. And you're going to struggle through that and then you're going to go home and go, yeah, but at least I'm going to heaven. <laughs> and all those guys going to football games and out on the, you know, they're boating and they're, they're just having a great time and partying and stuff like that. Yeah, but at least I get to go to heaven. <laughs> and they're going to go somewhere else because they're not as valiant as I am. They, you know, they wanted to sin, so they're going to sin. But at least I get to go to heaven. And they go somewhere else. And then to come along and say, hey, they're going to end up in the same place as you. Then we, we might have that tendency to go, yeah, but they didn't listen to all the high council speakers I did. <laughs> That's not fair. I, I should get something that they don't get because I suffered. I sacrificed time on the water and going to the football game to have to sit in church. Yeah. My kids went through this in seminary with their friends. Going they get to sleep in, right? And the um, seminary teacher said that they don't have to repent, or but you don't have to repent, and they do, and that's going to hurt them a lot. So, yeah, but what happens even though if they repent, but they're still going to end up in the same place? Well, that's, it's, that's the thing. The repentance is not easy, right? But, but at the moment, I know. But at the moment when we're in that, or and, and you kind of get some of that flavor in the Book of Mormon, those that are going to say, "Hey, just beat me with a few stripes," and they go, "See, there should be a lot of stripes, <laughs> and there should be a lot of pain." I listen to a lot of high council speakers. Yeah. Well, you know, part of it is I think of my children, and they don't do everything right. They don't do everything wrong either. Yeah. And 
Yes. To, to do what you can. Um, my father is uh, related to President Dallin Phillips. Uh-huh. And at his funeral, um, Dallin came and, and spoke. Oh, cool. And uh, one of the things that he, you know, he knew his history and, and knew us and everything. And uh, one of the things that he said in his talk was, as it says in the scriptures, in my father's house, there are many, 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 <laughs> and which I thought described it well, that there are many places that are set for the different people who don't do all good or don't do all bad. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There is no question that, that from, the, and I think that's sometimes the battle where we're saying, um, you know, when, I, when I've suggested in other places that that final battle uh, at, at the Mount of Olives, and we're talking about the good guys will make it and the bad guys will get burned like stubble. Like, we want them to fry. We want them, no, it's like, no, wait a minute. These are Heavenly Father's children, too. It's like, you know, in the, uh, when we're watching the Ten Commandments, uh, are we pretty happy when the Egyptian chariots get drowned in the, in the sea? Ah, they got theirs. It's like, but wait a minute. These are Heavenly Father's children, too, and, and the Father is weeping at their pain and loss. Plus, they didn't even know, right? They're just following orders. Yeah, here and then here. I think that when they are changes, we can depend on the stage of our lives that we are. We can be the father of the prodigal son, or we can be the older brother. It just depends where we are. Oh, is that so true? And how many of us end up in that role of the prodigal son? Uh, I'm. I, I've mentioned before I'm working on a book on this at the moment, and we're trying to figure out exactly what did the older son say and what was his reaction. We're trying to put him in first person, which is kind of fun. Yeah. So you've got to be really careful about wanting fairness and justice. I don't think if you really think about it, you want fairness or justice, because they all condemn you. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. <laughs> that the Father at the judgment seat, the Father represents justice, the Son represents mercy, and the accuser represents condemnation. And if you want to get up and accuse anybody and say it's not fair that they get what yes, yes, yes. You must stand with the accuser. And if you stand with the accuser, you cannot be claimed as a son of Christ. Yeah, because that's not what he would do, right? So, okay, so, so, uh, so, so let me stop for a second. Listen to where you guys are right now. This is our tradition. This is our understanding. And this is, so if you're going to get new information, you've got any other new information about the next life or something, you would have to slide it into your already set of beliefs. Does that, does that make sense? We have, a, as Latter-day Saints, we have a top-to-bottom scheme of how we believe, how we see the world, how we see the next life. And anything new has got to slide into that framework. Okay. Now, so that's, that's why this, this verse, well, I want to take some real time on about four verses in Mosiah because this verse has stopped me every time I get to it and it just sends me, I probably spent more time trying to understand this set of verses 
These four verses probably than any other set of verses in all the Book of Mormon. Okay? It's in Mosiah 26. Now, it came to pass that there were many in the rising generation. Now, by the way, how's a, let me just ask. How's our rising generation at the moment? What's, what's, our, what's our activity rate for uh, YSAs? Bishop, what's the, what's the activity rate for the YSA age in the church? If, and I think that's generous. 30 to 40%. Okay? I think that's probably, that's probably, that, that's our experience, right? Kind of right in that, ooh, struggling. And now, and we've always said YSA, but what's the activity rate or the rising generation even older than that? Ooh, Gen Z's taking it on the, yeah. It's less than 10%. It's less than 10%. Yeah. The rising generation is just struggling at the moment, okay? And, and there's, there's a few little clues here that says, here's where some, for, not for all, but here's where some of those struggles might lie. Or how sometimes, for some, how it happens. Now, it came to pass there were many in the rising generation that could not understand the words of King Benjamin being little children at the time he spake to his people. Now, if you look at the timeline on this, uh, I, won't, I'm, I won't belabor it, but the timeline is about 20 years. So this is about 20 years later that this is happening from the time King Benjamin spoke. And we're coming right in the period of time, remember, when Alma and his people have shown up in Zarahemla, Limhi and his people have shown up. Uh, remember that uh, King Mosiah gets everybody together. Alma then preaches, organizes the church. But we've got Zarahemla people that were more n numerous than the Nephi people. But they had their traditions of... What? Hold on. What would... If, you're, if you are a descendant of Zarahemla and you have heard some things from King Benjamin, but what was your tradition in Zarahemla before King Benjamin does his little speech. Aha. Where were the people of Zarahemla? Where did they come from? Jerusalem. By way of who? Mulek. So what tribe are the people of Zarahemla? Judah. Judah. What, what, uh, what tribe does the kingship come from? What, what, what tribe was there, uh, Zedekiah and Josiah? What tribe were they? Judah. Judah. This, was the, this was the Davidic line through David. They were, and what tribe was supposed to rule Judah, or true Israel? Judah. The Zarahemla people were from Judah. Here comes the Nephite people. Here comes Mosiah the first, and he comes out of the land of Nephi, and he brings the people, and they find Zarahemla. Zarahemla's lost their language, of the, and they don't have the scriptures, and here comes Mosiah, and he's going to show up, and he's got the scriptures, he's got the brass plates. What tribe was uh, Mosiah? Manasseh. Well, or Ephraim, if you've got some tracings back to Ishmael. So, Ephraim or Manasseh. 
and you are Zarahemla people. <laughs> You're Zarahemla people going back to Judah. Who's supposed to be king? It should, it, what tribe should be the kings? Judah. Judah. Who, who did we make king? Manasseh. That's weird. Samuel who anoints Saul uh -huh. as king. And Saul was a Benjamite, not a Judah. That's right. So, but but remember, Saul's going to lose the kingdom because of his wickedness, so then I'm going to install... I understand that, but, but this is subsequent to the patriarchal blessings given by Israel in which Judah was promised that the scepter would never depart. That's right. That's right. So when you get a hold of the, you get a hold of the brass plates, who should be kinging here? Judah. At, yes, right. But if you're sitting in Zarahemla and you start to understand the traditions of the fathers, who should be kinging in Zarahemla? Judah people. But because we kind of lost our way and stuff like that, we're allowing for Ishmaelites to be, to be kings. And ultimately, when we, we're going to vote when we get to Messiah II, but you know, we're going to get... And then, so King Benjamin... Did, did you mean Ephraimites rather than Ishmaelites? Yes, yes, thank you. Well, it could be Ephraimites or it could be Ishmaelites. We're not quite, again, which line you're going. Okay? All, all they know is that their tradition, and the more that they understand about their tradition, says it should be maybe Judah. But we're going to... So I'm accepting that King Benjamin, we love King Benjamin, he was awesome and everything, but there's going to be a certain group of those people who are going to say... You sure it shouldn't have been Judah people from Zarahemla? And by the way, as you get farther into the Book of Mormon, those people are going to be called what? The king men. Those are going to be the king men. Okay, now. So, so but all I'm saying is, is that when all of these groups are brought together, the Limhi people and the Alma people and stuff like that, they're all going to get together and... And Messiah is trying to teach him, and Alma's setting up the church. We, got, we can now set up the church and have baptisms that we haven't been doing before, we don't think. We got, but there are traditions and beliefs that are still sitting in there that maybe you bought the King Benjamin thing, and maybe some people didn't, especially if you didn't hear him. Okay? So look at what happens. There's many of the rising generation that couldn't understand the words of, of King Benjamin. And by the way, this includes who? Who's part of the, that rising generation that didn't believe? Alma the Younger from Alma, Nephite. And then you've also got the sons of, of Mosiah. They're also going to be little twerps, but they're also from Mosiah, right? Okay, but they're, they're going to take things in a different direction. So what happens here? It says, they did not believe what? The traditions of the fathers. Oh, oh, all right. So let, we, need to, we need to track this for just a sec. Because I, I need you to see how this works. Because right now we're, we're in a period of time in, in our church history where we're looking at the traditions and our history. and, we're, and we're, it's a, Our history is under greater scrutiny than it ever has been and should be. 
we, we want the truth. We want the truth to be laid out well. And sometimes we're finding stuff in our history that ain't happy. <laughs> okay? So look what's going to happen in, in uh, Zarahemla here. Hope you, oh boy, that's going to be hard to, I'm going to have to point this out. First of all, you've got a group of people that can't understand. Wendy, I wonder if we need to darken that just a little bit. At least for right now. Of course, some of that's going to come. Oh, that's better. As good as it can be. Okay. So look at the sequence here. And, by the way, and, and, and while we're looking at this, we should be looking at where we stand with today's rising generation. That, that's kind of where I want to get to. Okay. So this is a group of people that couldn't understand King Benjamin. As a result, what happens? They did not believe the traditions of their fathers. And we'll, I want to come back to this in a second about what traditions are we talking about they didn't believe. Uh, outside of they didn't believe about the resurrection. And, okay? They didn't believe the tradition of the fathers. So then what happens? Mormon tells us that because they didn't believe in the traditions they also couldn't understand the Word of God. That's why I keep looking at this and going, okay, there's, what is there in the traditions? Not the teachings so much as the traditions. They couldn't understand the Word of God. Hmm. Okay, something about struggling with the tradition sets us up so we don't understand the Word of God. And then if we don't understand the Word of God, then what? They wouldn't be baptized. And they were separate forever after. So in some, this is why this becomes important. If they couldn't understand what was being taught, and they don't believe in the traditions of the fathers, the whole thing ends up in them being separate. Separating out. Does that make sense? That's, that's Mormon's take. Now, is that exactly what happened? Probably, but again, this is Mormon's telling it. He's walking us through here. Here's how he looks at it. They wouldn't be baptized and were separate. Okay? Alright. Questions on that? How are we doing so far? We swimming? A little, little deeper? Okay. A lot of thinking going on. There's two more kings. Limhi and Alma. Almost. Yeah, we got Alma, who's been a who, who he did, Alma didn't want to be a king, but right. Limhi was. But he's right. a descendant of Noah, right. so he's got some kingship. But he's handed it off to Mosiah, right. you know. But uh, their children. Yeah, so they they had their experiences, and Alma had his experiences. And by the way, Alma's people should be completely faithful because they all were baptized at the waters of Mormon, and and uh, but they were out there for about seventeen years. So everybody coming out of Helam and then seeing the miraculous things that happened that got them to Zarahemla, that's, that whole gang, that whole generation should be completely faithful, right? Except for Alma the Younger. So again, you go, wait a minute. Alma the Younger lived through the occupation. 
He lived through uh, like the waters of Mormon. He probably pretty little at the time, but he's there. But could he understand? Good question. All right. So whenever I'm looking at things in the Book of Mormon, I'm trying to understand. I always go back to the uh, Webster's 1828 dictionary because this is this tells us Joseph Smith's language. This is how they understood it, and especially in the first generation of the church. Because we, we use words um, um, now that don't match what they, the same word used in 1830. And you've got to know how the word was used in 1830, separate from how we see it now. Does that make sense? Okay. Uh, so, Webster's, I, I looked up traditions in Webster's 1828 dictionary. Here's what it says. It's the delivery of opinions, doctrines, practices, rights, customs from father to son or from ancestors to posterity. Okay. So it's the transmission of opinions and practice from forefathers to descendants by, and, and in 1820 a lot of this meant by oral communication without written materials. Do you realize that when you were raising your kids that you had two sets of rules in your family? There was the rules you understood, and there were the rules that the kids understood. Something like that, yeah. But even more than that, let's say there's no, there's no ice cream after 9 o'clock. And that's the official, traditional family rule. No ice cream after 9 o'clock. And then I go, Dad, can I have uh, ice cream? No. Dad, can I have ice cream? No. Dad, can I have ice cream? No. Dad, can I oh, have some? <laughs> so is the rule no ice cream after nine? No. What's the rule? After four, after four buggings. <laughs> if I bother you enough, the answer will be yes. And you're saying, in our family, you stand up in sacrament meeting. In our family, we don't need ice cream after nine o'clock. And the kids are going, no, it's four. Four buggings, we will actually get to eat ice cream. That's the real rule. <laughs> you don't get to do anything on a school night unless I bug you enough, and then I can. And the kid, do the kids know the real rule? They understand both sets of rules. I know that's what he said, but yeah. Or is the rule says, uh, Dad says that I can't have ice cream after 9 o'clock, but mom will let me have ice cream. <laughs> or not, usually it's the other way around, isn't it? Yeah. Mom says, them are the rules. Yeah, but I'll go ask dad. So the rule is ask the right person. It's not whether you can have ice cream or not. <laughs> That's the real tradition. It's not, it's not the one carved in stone like you think it is. Okay? Does that make sense? Okay, so when we're talking about traditions... We're talking about a whole series of things that we believe, and we've got to take a hard look at what are the traditions uh, that are actually here, okay? 
thus children derive their language chiefly from tradition. Most of our early notions are received by tradition. If tradition is that we go to church on Sunday, but reality is we don't go to church very often, <laughs> then that ends up being the real tradition. Okay. So, but, but, in our, but in our church, again, as I, as I look at somebody that's investigating the church, and they're walking in, are they just walking into another church? Or are they walking into a church that has a whole series of, first of all, our language? Well, welcome to the Stake Center. I'll be with you in a minute, but I've got to go to a PPI because uh, my kids are getting ready to go to FSY. Okay? If, if you said, if, if somebody was new to the church and, and you said to them, man, uh, this has been a rough day. It's like pulling handcarts. Huh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what? What do wheelbarrows have with a bad day? <laughs> yeah, I get the handcart thing, man. I've been that planting in my backyard too. <laughs> no handcarts, okay? You know, think about the language and our traditional and our scheme, the way that we look at things, and and think about the traditions that that are built into that. So, if somebody's gonna gonna come in, they have what they're looking at is. I have to fit what I know into that. I got to try and plug that into what exists there. Okay. We had a guy. We had a guy the other day that actually plays the piano quite well. He's not a member, and he wants to play the piano. And and uh, I said, "Well, we'd love to have you come up and play the piano." And his response was, "Yeah, but can I go up on the stand? I'm, I'm not a member. Can I go up on the stand?" Okay, what, what does that tell you about his tradition? Only the preacher. Only the priest, right? He's, he's, he, you can't go up into the nave unless you were one of the priests. Okay, so it tells me he's got some, some maybe some Catholic stuff in there. Uh, I remember another uh, guy that my son had invited to church, and, and he walked into sacrament meeting, and he came right down the aisle, and as, and as soon as he got to about here, he went... Okay, he's going to cross himself in front of the altar, okay? That's his tradition, and, and, and we're having to say, by the way, in ours, you don't necessarily have to do that. Well, that's his traditions. Was this, this happened in an LDS chapel? Happened in our ward. Well, you know, that shows that he had respect. He did have respect. Uh, on, our, on our mission, I remember having, on my mission, I, I had a Book of Mormon, I tried to give it to a guy who was Muslim, and he says, no, I haven't washed my hands yet. In other words, I can't, I can't touch the sacred book unless I have washed and prepared myself. That's their traditions. Okay? Um, so think about all of the, the traditions that, that we have. Um, yeah, before, before I get, so, so I don't want to go too far down this road because it's kind of a, a weird road to, to go down. But think about traditions that we've had in our church that turned out to be traditions or policies that we haven't necessarily carried through, but as we were growing up, this was part of 
the traditional part of the church, and then we, it had to change over time. Okay. Uh, let me let me give you one example of that. When, when I was on my mission um, in England, this is in the 70s. Uh, the understanding was coming from uh, the brethren that. Um, England, like so many other in Europe, uh, because they were coming from the right tribes, were part of the believing blood. That there are some tribes that are more believing and they will accept the gospel quicker. And so our job was, when we're out banging on doors, is if somebody's not accepting the gospel, what does that mean? They're not part of the believing blood. So you've got to move faster and knock on more doors so you can find those with believing blood and the believing blood people then you'll pull in because they're going to accept it and those that aren't of the believing blood they will say no. So that's why you're going to challenge them to baptism on about the first time you meet them, first discussion. If this was true, would you join the church? Stuff like that. The believing blood people will say yes. The non-believing blood will say no. We're going to roll right through this thing. Okay? Let me ask you something, because some of us may still believe that to a certain extent. But let me just simply ask this. When was the last time you heard in general conference the phrase, believing blood? Never. <laughs> Never. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, if I, took, if, you, if I took you back to the 40s and 50s, would you hear it? You would. Uh, and there was just a sense at that time that was a belief that was part of the tradition that ultimately we've looked at as the church as a living, growing entity can recognize things that ended up ending, ending up in sometimes we thought were doctrine. But with more light and knowledge, you go, no, apparently that was a talk that somebody gave and they plugged into that over time and we, and we took it on. Okay, so sometimes it's part of our tradition. I want to kind of end up here a little bit. There are, there are times and places then where we have accepted into our traditional thing, uh, a traditional set of beliefs, and then we pass them along to other people. And sometimes you look back at that and cringe just a little bit and say, oh, we, we, we need to allow prophets to be... Um, oh, let me give you another one. And let, let me walk carefully on this one a little bit. Okay? Because it, it, it's a little bit more recent. In our... We, we have had, in the not-too-distant past, we've had a number... Of, we've heard a number of talks uh, from the brethren in conference. Take, I can take you right to it. Where they, they would say, if the Book of Mormon is true then Joseph Smith was a prophet. And if Joseph Smith was a prophet, then the church is true. So if, the Book of Mormon, if you get a testimony of the Book of Mormon, then Joseph Smith was a prophet. And if Joseph Smith is a prophet, church is true. Now, anything outside of that, you don't need to know. <laughs> if somebody's asking questions about test Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith, church is true, Let's baptize you next week. Okay? Straight line. Okay? Now, that's putting an awful lot of weight on the Book of Mormon. If you ask, it, 
What is the purpose of the Book of Mormon? Is it to verify, it, and it has, it has verified a lot of Joseph Smith's prophethood, I, I, I get that. But ask the Book of Mormon. <laughs> What's the Book of Mormon's purpose? Is it to prove prophets? No, what's the Book of Mormon's purpose? It's another, it's another testimony of Christ. To bring us to Christ. Yes, and to verify the Bible. Okay, so what happened when, when we built this whole thing on the Book of Mormon is the key if the Book of Mormon is true, everything else is true. What happened with that? Did that blow up on us a little bit? Where did it blow up? DNA, Indian horses in the Book of Mormon, Hebrew anachronistic language, which we can argue about all day long, whether that's true or not true, but the problem is, is that through the internet and stuff like that, as we started, as the Book of Mormon came under attack for what it was, or Joseph Smith came under his attack, then the whole thing starts to sway because you've just wiped out the foundation stones. The Book of Mormon testifies of Christ. So, so, so there is a place in terms of saying that our scripture is to testify of Christ. Now, if you're, if, you're, if you're a little bit uncomfortable right now, that's right. You should be. Because that is part of our tradition and what we have taught and what we have believed. There's, there ought to be a sense of uncomfort about what we do with that. Because I think we're having to change a little bit. Uh, you, you walk through, I was just walking through the, the halls of of this building. Do you know they've changed out the artwork in all the buildings? What are you seeing in the, in the halls of, of our church buildings? You know, what? Savior. Pictures of the Savior. What, what is it that's disappearing out of our hallways? Church history stuff. And for those of us who love church history and were weaned on church history and stuff like that, to see the church ma making this swing away from some of our history ought to be a little bit dissonant for us. Okay? It's not what we believe growing up. Book, book, the, the church is about hand carts and gold plates and... And the church is saying, we need to really be focusing more on the Savior and downsize the other stuff. Yeah. Well, the thought that came to me when you were saying this is when we put all of our faith in the basket of Joseph Smith, it's, it's not Christ that we're thinking of. It's no! It is. And so, and so sometimes people have said, oh, I went, to, I went to a Mormon sacrament meeting and they were worshiping Joseph Smith. And we go, nah, we don't worship Joseph Smith, we worship the Savior. But on certain sacrament meetings, based on what you're hearing, what are you hearing, especially if, if your understanding, your tradition is about who do we worship? Could you walk into, could you walk into a, an LDS sacrament meeting singing praise to the man and think, who are we worshiping here? Okay, I can see, you can easily see where people would believe that and hear that, and, and that I think that's a like I say we're we're in this period of time, guys. Where I think the church is trying to change the tradition, move the ball a little bit, but especially those of us with a little snow on our head, you know, right? Well, that's not what we believe growing up. You know, how come you're pulling me away from this is what I knew? And by the way, where's the road shows? <laughs> we should be having road shows. Yeah. Bedmar said at the fireside a few years back, he says, you know, if your testimony is based on Jesus Christ, it will prevail. Yes. 
prophets. It's based on teachers. It's based on church leaders. Or missionaries. Prophets. Yes. I think that's true. I think. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so my testimony is based on the Book of Mormon. Yes. I read the Book of Mormon. I had a revelation. Yes. I was about 20 years old. Right. I was a drug using stoner rock musician. And I read the Book of Mormon over a period of about a year. Because a friend of mine who went on a mission said, if you only do one thing for me, Alan, read the Book of Mormon. Cool. And I did. And it changed my life. It took me two years to repent after I absolutely knew and know at this very moment that the church is true. Sure. Based on the testimony of the Book of Mormon. Therefore, Brother Hinckley. Yes. Joseph Smith was a prophet. Therefore, the church is true. Okay. Now, the difference between being seeped in tradition and being locked into this 10,000 foot view. Because I also know that Joseph Smith was a person. Yes. And he was not perfect. There you go. He was a long way from perfect. In fact, he said that he was jovial. And then he, and he hooked up with bad people at one time. Sure. Bad or crazy yeah. or whatever, right? And there's been plenty of people in the church who have said things that are not quite right. That does not change the fact that I know that the Book of Mormon is true. Absolutely. And that very fact has kept me on the straight and narrow forever. See, and I think you've got, but you've got a beautiful thing with that. Uh, because, uh, in fact, the Lord was even trying to say to that first generation of the church in section one, we, we have these leaders, and I'm going to speak through them. However, they're going to have their weaknesses, and when they sin, they need to repent. And so part of what section one is telling us, you're going to have leaders who have weaknesses and they need to repent and guess what and this beautiful book of mormon came through a fallible um guy, guy with warts and which actually makes it more miraculous in in my way of thinking you know if we just said joseph smith never made a mistake ever he never said anything wrong we'd say well, then I can't do anything similar. But the fact that if Joseph Smith at his age and with, and with his farm boy humanness, out of him came this beautiful, miraculous thing, it's actually a greater. It's, it's, it's almost like we received the Book of Mormon almost in spite of Joseph Smith in, in some ways. Okay? Yeah. So, uh, you guys are going to have the match family. <laughs> <laughs> I'm on the same role. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, I'm gonna make a, I'm gonna, I've been sitting here holding on to a comment for a while. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, okay, so here it comes. I think, the, I think the big difference between when we look at what was happening with, in Mosiah 26. Yeah, yeah. Versus, you know, and the generation that rejected, the younger generation that was rejecting the tradition of their fathers. Right. The big difference between them and the big difference between the Gen Z slash millennials of the day that right, we're right. talking about. Big difference, what is it? It's the internet. Did mo in, this, in this context... You, we're you don't think they had a lot of info to, to run on? In this context, <laughs> where we're reading in Mosiah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the way I understand this or read this, and if anybody has any way to contradict this or understand this differently than the way I see this, I'd love to hear it. But... <laughs> It seems to me like what's happening is is that that this that generation is simply just rejecting the traditions on their face. 
right? And meaning, but, Right. Yes. Yes. It w it was there, but they weren't really being exposed so to it. All of right. Those right. Generations who have their own perspective, like you were talking about, how have their own layered perspective of the world, are all being forced to kind of assimilate this new information at the same time. Yes. And it's a cultural and a generational question of how do they assimilate, assimilate that information. That's what, that's the could thing. not. Well, th that's right. They didn't have an internet that was an no, but but they're having you know maladies or whatever you know historic. What did you say? Unhappiness. Right. <laughs> no, no, no. You're right, and I think and I think that's the challenge, and ultimately that's where I want to go with this. Thank you. Uh, is this idea that for every generation and their culture, and here comes new information. Uh, the question is, how do they how do they assimilate it? And you're exactly right. This this generation, the generation, our, our kids and grandkids are, are being forced to try and assimilate into a greater amount of knowledge and information. And where does it fit? And how does it, how does it fit? But I think there's a bit of a, the, the thing that I like about this is that we're being, see, we're being given a little bit of a template that I think still, uh, I, think it, I think it lives. I think it, I think it survives. Because uh, if we look through here, okay, they didn't believe in the traditions of their fathers. Now, part of how we know, and, and, and the rest, and, and what's going to happen in the rest of Mosiah and even into Alma, we're going to see, we're going to answer another question that we haven't even approached yet. And it's this. If they didn't believe the traditions of their fathers, what traditions were they believing? Because they're going to believe in a system of belief. They are. Guys, we just, without going too far down this road, we just had an election in this country by primarily two different groups of people with two different assumptions about how the world works and what should be fair and what is not fair and what is right and what is not right and based on that and who they listen to on podcasts and who they, what voices they're listening to and what shows they watch late at night and what books they read and what friends they have and, and we're going to have all of that and then they go to the poll and they vote based on here's how my world exists and this is the person that I think can take me to that vision because this is how I see the world, okay? <laughs> and then we have Thanksgiving. <laughs> and we get all those people in the same room. <laughs> you know? And, and, and all you have to do is, do you think Trump will run again? <laughs> right? <laughs> but because we have 
our beliefs about what we believe and how we see the world, and any new information coming in has to be assimilated into... So, so part of what I guess I'm asking today is, what do you believe? I'm, not, I'm asking this rhetorically. <laughs> what do you believe? What's got, what it, when information comes in, what are, what are you trying, where are you trying to plug it into in your world? Okay, where does it, where does it fit? Okay, yes. 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 That were not gospel doctrine. <laughs> and so what happens is frequently you get a group of people who says, you know what? That sounds like a tradition rather than a doctrine. And so I'm going to strip the tradition away and I'm not going to be bound by the tradition. Yeah. And when they don't know the difference between the tradition and the doctrine, they often throw out the doctrine with the tradition. Maybe with the That's the danger. Now, what you're going to watch, though, I'm just trying to set you up for the rest of Messiah and Alma. Because when we get to Alma 1, we're going to run into Korahor. And Korahor is going to give you this, it's going to, you're going to see this whole tradition belief of should priests be paid? You know, is it all right to do this? You can do this. Uh, you can kind of sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. I mean, there's a, Korahor has this whole belief system top to bottom. But he's getting it from these guys. This is the moment when we get this, uh, this alternate thing going on. So they don't believe in the traditions of their fathers. Uh, so because of that, we get the resur they don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, the coming of Christ. Uh, verse 3 because of their unbelief, they couldn't understand the word of God. Their hearts were hardened, uh, and they weren't baptized, neither would they join the church. Now, isn't it interesting that when, in, in uh, the next chapter, because now we're going to be, we're going to watch Alma the Younger and the sons of Mosiah, who represent this rising generation. What exactly would that look like on the ground? Here you go. You got four guys, five guys. And a hamburger. No, that's five guys. It's something else. Okay. Um, what did they believe and how did it look and what did they do, this rising generation? I, I just think it is so interesting that when, and when we get to the next verse, and here comes Alma and Alma's conversion. And the angel comes. What? Listen to what the first thing that the angel tells him. So I'm going to hop over here to Mosiah 27, 16. So while the earth is shaking and Alma is being called to repentance by the angel, look at what the angel throws in here. 16. Now I say unto thee, go and do what? Remember the captivity of who? Thy fathers. If you are, if you're part of Alma's people, and you're sitting in Zarahemla, and you're going to give a fireside. Okay, T tonight we have uh, Helam. Oh, really? Helam's speaking tonight. Oh, that's cool. Okay, um, what what story do you think Helam's going to give in a youth fireside in Zarahemla? 
let me tell you about the waters of Mormon. And we're going to go down the history, right? Let me tell you about the waters of uh, Mormon. Let me tell you about the land of Helam, uh, named after me. I didn't ask for it, but okay, there it is. Okay. <laughs> And they, they put us under bondage. And then it was really weird, guys. We, went, we, we were told to gather all of our stuff at night. And we gathered it. We woke up the next morning. And what was happening to our guards? Sleepy time. They're like, they're knocked out. It was so cool. They're all asleep. So we're like leading our animals out. And we got all of our wagons. And we're leaving town. And nobody woke up. It was so cool. And only the Lord could have done that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So, um, it's in this same way we have the same thing that's happening in Utah uh, after 1857 guess who they are inviting to speak at firesides in 1858 and 1859 pioneers. pioneers and specifically after 1857 handcart people let me tell you what happened let me tell you how God got us through okay wow so there is, so, so part of what the angel is saying, I'm going to go back, uh, now I'm going to start reminding you of some of your tradition. You are people that came from people that lived in Helam. You are people that were at wa the waters of Mormon. Limhi's people, it might be, we're going to have Limhi speak, and he's like, well, my dad was really a bad man, guys. <laughs> let, let me tell you what my dad used to do, you know, and here's why he did it. No, 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 okay? traditions okay so let me so let me come full circle here because even the angel is going to say um, I need you to remember things about your history I need you to remember this stuff so as important to us and, and I think this is part of what we're trying to adjust to as a church because we're no longer a pioneer church we are generations way after that. So here's, my, here's my question then. It's apparently important to an angel. What role, here's the big question, what role does our pioneer heritage and our heritage of the first generations of the church, and this is after, you know, I just, we just, uh, Cindy and I just helped take a group in June through all the church history sites, and so we were, we were at Harmony and Kirtland and Palmyra and all these all these places. What role does our history now play? What role does our traditions play in our in our faith in a church that is trying to double down on our understanding of the Savior? Okay. That we need to do the work to have the testimonies, to have the miracles in our lives like they did. Okay, that they, they begin to be examples for us. Okay. What else? Yeah. They're not really as relevant as what they used to be because a lot of people now are conscious of the members are not from the United States. No. And they are pioneers in their own way, not that way. Yeah, if I'm if I'm from uh, Japan or I'm from Chile, you know, uh, the the handcart stuff sounds pretty important. Um, but that really doesn't I don't relate to it very much but if I'm in Africa maybe the pioneer stuff doesn't make any sense but but stories of Billy Johnson the the Mormon Paul 
and then organizing before the church before the priesthood was ever restored. There's a, there's a story. Maybe they have different traditions. I guess is what I'm saying. If God's hand led them, He will lay us too, and that's all the scriptures are is history of showing God's hand in their lives. Yes, it is, and so actually. As we're starting to do that, I think one of the benefits that we have, like with the New Testament and even the Old Testament, even with all of its flaws and questionable at certain points, where exactly did this come from and, and all that, we're still getting a chance to say there is incredible value in our, in our history. All I know is that every time, one of the things that I do, if I've got a tour group, and I remember having this conversation with a bus driver last year, and, and I'd, said, I'd said to the tour group company, I said, when we get to Nauvoo, we're going to the old burial ground. And, and uh, the leaders of the, the company were saying, we can't really get buses into that old burial ground up on Parley Street, farther up the road. And I said, no, we're, gonna go to the, we're going to the old burial ground. <laughs> no, you just can't do it and everything. So we're halfway across Illinois, and I said to the bus driver, I need to get the group into the old burial ground. And he pulls it up on the map, and, and as he's driving, it's kind of weird, he's looking at it, he's driving, he goes, yeah, I think I can get the bus in there. <laughs> think you can? Yeah, I think I got that. Cool. But we had two buses. <laughs> as is, is there room for two buses in that little parking lot at the old burial ground at the top of Parley Street? And he goes, yeah, I think I can do that. He did. You know, I was so amazed. He, he dropped us off on Party Street. I took the group uh, down into uh, the old burial ground. Uh, and then he and the other bus driver put those two buses side by side. Have you ever, have you ever been to the old burial ground? Okay. There's not a lot of room in that parking lot in the old burial ground. And they stuck two big old tour buses, <laughs> plugged them right in there while I had them up at, at, uh, in the old burial ground. I went to the burial ground there about 40 years ago, maybe 50 years ago. stop on a street with nothing around and crawl through a rock or a fence and yeah. go up the hill. Is that it? Pro probably that, uh huh. Yeah, it's. it's <laughs> yeah. It's where, it's where Edward Partridge is buried, but the, the graves are scattered throughout all the trees. Uh, some. Some of the headstones are broken off and stuff like that. A lot of women and children. A lot uh, buried on Thursdays because that's that was funeral day in Nauvoo. Um, yeah. Can you tell the group why we had the old burial ground? Oh. Yeah. Side side note. You know how we got the old burial ground up Parley Street? That was originally owned by uh, the Community of Christ. We swapped some land. For that, for that property, the old burial ground. You know what we swapped? Part of the temple lot at Independence. It's that important. It was one of President Hinckley's favorite places. But one of the reasons I'm telling you that is that whether it's been my sons going on missions or whether it's tour groups that we've taken through there, I want them standing in that burial ground because the spirit that is there and the sweetness that is there and the sacrifices there can't be duplicated almost anywhere. To me it's the, the only other place that I feel as that powerful is the Liberty Jail. When you go down inside the Liberty 
I would think that Gettysburg is, I would really think that Gettysburg is like that, okay? But it's when you stand in sacred places, it fi you feel the spirit. Um, so is there a place for our history and traditions in the church? Abs it, it's sacred to us. But it's such a balancing act between how we, how we utilize our traditions and not pull us away. Because, because to me, um, uh, one, other, one other place I'd mention, uh, apologize for going late. Um, uh, Cindy uh, and in Kirtland, Oliver uh, Granger. Granger, thank you. Oliver Granger, section 117. The other thing I'll do with, with tour groups is when we get to Kirtland, we'll go through the temple, and I love the Kirtland temple, but then I pull them across the street. Guys, follow me. We're going over here. And we will find the headstone of Oliver Granger. And you can find it in section 117. Where the Lord says, uh, I, the Lord, remember all of my servant Oliver Granger. Oliver Granger's job was to sell the land in Kirtland after they left for Missouri. And, he, and nobody's going to buy the land, the church properties, after they leave. They just don't. And he, it doesn't work. And what the Lord says in section 117, I, the Lord, remember Oliver Granger. And his name shall be known for generation after generation. Leolam Teshev, right? Generation upon generation. And when he fails, <laughs> and when he fails, he, um, maybe I'll finish with this. Hold on. Do, 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 do. One seventeen. You watch, I'm not going to find it. You will. You think I will? Okay. Here it is. Twelve. Again I say unto you, I remember my servant Oliver Granger. And verily I, I say unto him that his name shall be had in sacred remembrance from generation upon generation, forever and ever, saith the Lord. Therefore let him contend earnestly for the redemption of the first presidency. And then listen to this. And when he fails. I don't know if you've ever been given like a teach a certain class in Sunday school or primary or something like that. This ain't going well and nobody seems to be listening. Okay? And when he fails, he shall rise again. For his sacrifice shall be more sacred unto me than his increase, saith the Lord. Wow. That's the value of our traditions. While we're focusing on the Savior and the Savior is our theology, we have in our history of a church people that went through incredible sacrifices. And sometimes they failed and sometimes they didn't. They were just human, like us. You know, sometimes as parents we fail and sometimes we succeed and sometimes we're just flawed. But to me that's always been so. So one of the things I try and do in, in, when we take them to Kirtland, I want them all standing at that, at that headstone. Because to me I get to help... Uh, revelation help the Lord's revelations come true because at that moment I have a group of people that are going to say uh, they also will remember Oliver Granger uh, and, he, and to them also his name shall be had in sacred remembrance from generation to generation so anyway probably a little longer but um, one of the things that, that I guess I, I'm 
I want us to see with Mosiah and, and these sons where their memory of their family's traditions were, were something that they had forgotten or changed or altered. They saw it in a different sort of way. And even the angel is saying, no, the traditions play an important role in our beliefs. We just can't let it take over and become the primary thing because for a lot of years, our, our traditions were our, was our theology. And the church is trying to say, our theology is the Savior. But we have a group, a generation, and our history and a tradition in this church of people that believed in the Savior against incredible odds. So, any final comments on that? that we're all, a bit all over the place, yeah. I've been thinking a lot about your Book of Mormon, Joseph Smith. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think what maybe outsiders may not understand, and I hope we understand, at least that's the way, this is the way I feel, is that we have s such gratitude to Joseph Smith for being so steadfast. Because if I had to choose a life, I wouldn't have wanted his life. <laughs> no, we wouldn't want to have Joseph Smith's I mean, life. We, and I wouldn't have wanted to be married to him. I mean, it would, wouldn't want Emma's life either. Yeah, I wouldn't have wanted Emma's life. But, you know, never did he ever say this church will be named after me. Right. He never made... That's true. It was all from the very beginning, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And he did not, have, you know, there's many are called, but few are chosen. He never gave up. And I think that's that's the legacy that we, yes, obviously he was a person. Give up in spite of our, our dumbs and you our... Know, instead of all the horrible things that happened, all the setbacks yeah. and all that, he ended up giving his life. Yeah. Uh, I think we have, and when we say praise to the man, we're praising someone who would do that. Yeah. Who would sacrifice like that. Yeah, and I think to a certain extent, I, I agree with you, and, and, and I think as long as we understand that, then it certainly makes sense, right? You just see how it looked like from the outside, yeah. There's a quote ascribed to Joseph Smith where he said, I do not condemn anybody who does <laughs> Yeah. I, I wouldn't have believed it myself. Yeah, the King Follett discourse. He's going, yeah, this is, this is crazy. And, and he's going to say, I've never said I'm perfect. But, the, but the, the legacy, I think, of our traditions, maybe I'll leave it here. The legacy of the traditions that we have in this church is imperfect people doing amazing, inspired, powerful things. And I think that's the value of our traditions, is recognizing their lives. And, and the more, that, that's why I, I welcome all the internet scrutiny, because when we're gonna, we get it right, and some of what I look at is like, well, they obviously are looking at it. They don't understand. Read the Joseph Smith papers. All of his words are there. Okay? So anyway, I, 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 uh, I love this gospel. I love the church. I love our traditions. I love our history. And I love the Savior. And trying to help the rising generation see the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and his love, I think is one of the keys to being able to live more in harmony with people maybe that are, have struggled. So anyway, I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You're on. <laughs>